Thanks for joining us on our walk through the Apostle Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. We'll see the many cultural similarities between the Pacific Northwest and ancient Greece, as well as being challenged in how we are designed to live out the gospel through the local church. In the first mini-series, we will look to the first four chapters where Paul deconstructs the counterfeit places we find meaning and significance and makes his case for why Christ is the greatest person for us to look to for our status and hope for the future. For more information, join us on Sundays in downtown Bellevue at 9 or 11 a.m. or visit www.doxa-church.com. 1 Corinthians 2, 1-16 And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. Good to have you all here. Uh, I want to pray. That's a lot. Uh, so let's pray that the Lord gives us wisdom as we look at him, his word and what he says about wisdom. Let's do that together. Father, we come to you because you are the all-wise God. You are eternal you are holy, you are good, you are loving, you are gracious, and you reveal yourself to us through your word by your spirit. And so we ask that you would make yourself known more fully to all of us here as we seek you. Uh, we ask that your spirit would uh, bring awareness of these truths to our hearts, that you would convict us of unbelief or sin, that you would exhort us towards Jesus, and that in all this, we would find ourselves having great joy because you are glorified and we are satisfied. So we ask that you would do that in Jesus' name, amen. All right, 
as you know, we've been in this series in 1 Corinthians. Paul, in these first couple verses, is bringing to close uh, his previous conversation about uh, the way he came to preach and the way he came to preach in ways that didn't just play to the cultural norms of the day, that he wasn't going to play around with trying to just sound impressive. Uh, He says it this way, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. Paul wants to do everything he can to make sure nobody puts their confidence in the flesh. That nobody puts their confidence in winsome wise words, lofty speech, the ways of the world. And it's very easy to do that if we're not careful. In fact, I, 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 with Paul, would say every time I get up here to preach, I feel that same kind of fear and trembling, I think, that Paul is discussing here because I know the tendency of the human heart to want to make much of myself, to want to speak in a way that you're more impressed with me. I don't want that really in my spirit. My, as Paul used the language of spiritual man and natural man, the spiritual man, the new creation Jeff that's made alive by the Spirit of God, doesn't want that at all, but if I'm not careful, I I operate in the old ways. And so, like Paul, I wanna say to you, I, I don't want you to know anything except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I don't want you to walk out of a time together like this and somehow be impressed with a message. I want you to be impressed with the point of the message, which is Jesus Christ. That's, that's what Paul is saying here. And he, he to be clear, I, I said this last week, but if you weren't with us, it's not as though Paul's not smart. It's not as though he's not wise. It's not as though he doesn't know how to engage in the rhetoric of his day. He can do all that. But he refrains from doing that for the sake of making sure the gospel is clear. He certainly embodies the wisdom, even last week's teaching. I hope you heard it. If you didn't, go go ahead and listen. Paul does a brilliant job of speaking to the Jewish mind and the the Corinthian Greek mind as well at the same time. So he's using intelligence and he's not anti-intellectual in any way whatsoever but he is saying I came in weakness meaning I want to make less of myself and more of Christ I want to boast in my need so that the power of Christ might be perfected in my own application of the truth so you would walk away and go yeah there's Paul but Paul's not that great Jesus on the other hand now he's amazing And so Paul's very intentional to make sure he points to the power of God. In fact, he says to the Corinthians who are beginning to be led away from the truths of the gospel, they're slipping into the ways of the world and culturally uh, kind of getting sucked down into this uh, way of thinking that's leading them away from Jesus as evidenced by how they treat one another. He, He wants to warn them. And in his warning, he says, I want to remind you that when I came to you, and I remember he was with them for 18 months And he's writing, this is probably a second letter to them. He's writing them, trying to remind them of what happened. That when he showed up, he proclaimed the gospel and the power of the spirit and their hearts were changed. They were transformed. And they saw signs and wonders that the spirit brought about through miracles and and words of knowledge that Paul could speak in a way that pierced the heart. And, And they recognized it as the very spirit of the living God. 
And he wants to bring them back to that moment and go, have you forgotten what God did? Have you forgotten his power? Have you forgotten what his spirit does? You're, you're out there looking for some kind of wisdom, but you've forgotten that you've got the wisdom of God in Jesus Christ and the very spirit of God to make it take root in your hearts and transform you from the inside out. It reminds me of Paul's word to the church in Rome in Romans 1 verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Also reminds me of a story I read about Dwight L. Moody. How many of you guys are familiar with D.L. Moody? Powerful ministry, not a very eloquent man. In fact, uh, one of the greatest spiritual awakenings of the 19th century broke out at Cambridge University in England when D.L. Moody spoke. There was a guy there that tells the story, wasn't a believer at the moment, when, and he wasn't a believer in Jesus when Moody spoke, but later uh, came to be a pastor uh, in an Episcopal church in Virginia. He recalls the, the preparation to Moody's uh, showing up to, to preach, and he said amongst the students, they, they had kind of determined they were going to try and make fun of him publicly so that he wouldn't be able to preach because they were embarrassed with Moody's English. The, la- the way they said it is they said he murdered the king's English. In fact, some would say that Moody was probably the only man on the earth who could pronounce Jerusalem in one syllable. And so they were embarrassed. They, they, they don't want this backwoods guy coming to a prominent university, Cambridge, and embarrassing himself in front of everybody. Well, the day of the service, Moody, as often as he would often do, had Ira Sankey lead the, the, the people in the room in a hymn. And then after the song, Moody stepped up. Of course, all these classmates are ready to jeer him, to make fun of him, to basically get him off the stage. And Moody starts out with this statement. Don't ever think that God don't love you, for he do. He didn't, it wasn't like he was trying to have bad grammar, he just had bad grammar. And this is Cambridge. But something about the words captured the hearts of these young men and they couldn't speak. And instead of standing against him, they sat under the word of the Lord. And every few minutes, Moody would stop and he would say it again. Don't ever think that God don't love you, for he do. And it didn't matter if the speech was bad. It didn't matter if his grammar was atrocious. It didn't matter if it wasn't impressive because the spirit of God spoke through Moody. And in that moment, the spirit of God broke out over Cambridge. This particular man who tells a story that very day said, I sought out Mr. Moody for a private interview and I sat down with him and he prayed with me and he led me to Christ. And my life has never been the same since. A great awakening broke out at Cambridge University because a humble servant of the Lord who was not impressive and who could not speak well proclaimed the truth that God loves you in Jesus Christ. Now the good news is that the power of the gospel is not in the preacher, but in the message. It's not in the rhetoric, but in the spirit that takes a hold of the heart and changes you from the inside out. And and Doc, so the reason why I wanted to start 
with just slowing down a little bit and telling you of a man named D.L. Moody is because you and I are no different. God wants to take people who maybe you feel like you stumble over your words, you don't even know how you'd share the gospel if you're given the opportunity, and he wants to speak through you. He wants to use you. He wants God to work through your life. God wants the spirit to awaken you to the reality that God loves to use humble messengers who aren't gonna take credit in the end because they're gonna go, I'm not very good at this. I'm a lot like Moses. Half the time, I don't know what to say. But God loves to speak through those kinds of people. In fact, the big fallacy and potential uh, shortcoming of what I do every week is that if I'm not careful, you all think I've got to get my friend to come hear Jeff so that they can hear somebody proclaim the gospel because I can't. And I just want to say that's a lie from the evil one. It's just not true. Now, it's okay to bring your friend here to hear me. That's okay. Some of you were brought by a friend and I want to welcome you. And God does use the preaching of the word and God does give me a gift. And I believe that I have a gift. I want to steward it for his glory. But it doesn't mean you don't have it. Every one of you that has the spirit of God can experience the power of God speak through your lips to the hearts of men and women in such a way they can pierce them and bring them to faith in Jesus Christ. Some of you are gonna be at Super Bowl parties today. Side note, don't stand in front of the TV and preach. Okay, like that, no one will like that. But who knows, you might find yourself next to the queso having a conversation with somebody as they don't really care about the football game, but they're in a, a tough spot in their life right now, they're struggling, they're, they had a loss or they have a situation that they wonder if God even cares. You're gonna get the opportunity likely to listen to somebody and with, with the spirit of God at work around you to draw out their heart and as you get to listen and, and hear their heart, it's very likely that God will have some good news that he wants to share to that person through you. And it doesn't have to be a long-winded message. It can be God sees you. God knows you. God loves you. I know that you're sad. He feels that. I know you're wondering if he cares. He does. He sent his son to show you how much he loves you. Family, family, I want us to stop believing the lie that there's only a few who can proclaim the gospel. Everyone with the spirit of God. And that's, that's what Paul's trying to get after, with the spirit of God, can proclaim it in powerful ways. It might not sound powerful, but it is powerful. It may not be impressive, but he is impressive. I can't tell you how many times I get done with a message, and it's one of those where I'm like, that was not very good, not very happy with that. And someone comes up to me afterwards and goes, man, that was such a powerful message. You know? And you're like, gosh, why do I beat myself up as though it's up to me? And usually they'll say, and when you said this, and as they say, I'm like, I didn't even say that. That wasn't even in my message, right? And then you're realizing God is speaking. The spirit of God is here. Some of you aren't gonna hear anything I say, but you're gonna hear what God says because he's here, working. And that's what Paul wants to make sure is clear. This is not because of us. It's not because of me. It's not because of how well we communicate. It's because God is alive and real and by his spirit, he pierces the hearts of men and women to awaken them to the gospel so they can see the wisdom of God in Jesus Christ. Amen? What Paul does, quite, what Paul does next is quite ironic. Yeah, here he's been saying it's not about wisdom. It's not, a, you know, I don't want you to be thinking of it's about rhetoric and how we form our words and speak in eloquent ways. And then he goes, oh, so you want wisdom? Okay, well, we do impart wisdom. We have it. 
And if you're familiar with Paul's writings, this isn't the first time he's done this. He's done this in other places where he'll go, oh, you want to boast in the flesh? I have a lot more to boast in than you do. And then he gives you a whole long list, right? That's what he's going to do now, except for he's going to lead you to the wisdom that's truly wise, the wisdom that really is powerful, the wisdom that the Spirit of God brings to all of us when we find ourselves meeting God through Jesus Christ. And he says it this way in verse six, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. There's a couple things he's doing here. First of all, uh, the theme throughout the book is one of them is wisdom, of course, because uh, he's speaking to the cultural desire to find wisdom somewhere else. But he's also going to speak to this reality of being mature. And the word mature, the Greek uh, for that is teleoi. Some of you guys recognize that word, right? Last year we talked about te- telos. The, the, the telos of, or teleos of a human is their purpose, the divine uh, purpose for which God made you. And so now what Paul is saying is he's going, you guys all talking about who's wise around here and who's mature around here uh, because you're so afraid of being called a fool and you're so afraid of being called a novice or an immature person. Let me tell you, there is a wisdom that we impart to the mature And then he begins to describe what he means by mature. If you get all the way to the end of the message, the mature person is the spiritual person, not the smart person. Okay, the mature person is the person who's awakened to the spirit of God. The mature person is the one who walks in the power of the spirit. The mature person is not the one who can, who can spout off theology or is really brilliant in their ability to identify with all the doctrines. Like that's not maturity. Like I would say, it's very possible to know all the doctrines, to be well-versed in your Bible and still be very immature. And the way that Paul brings about maturity when he talks about it, as he describes it through the rest of the letter, is maturity shows up in us being a spiritual person who lives a spiritual life empowered by the Spirit of God in such a way that the life you live in relationship with people looks like love. Okay, that's all the way in, in chapter 13. I moved all the way through, okay? So that, that's coming. And so this is a really important turning point because he's saying, oh, you want to talk about maturity? There is a maturity and there is a wisdom and the people who are mature get the wisdom that's from the spirit. And let me tell you what that is about. So he goes on to tell us that this wisdom from the spirit, if we get it, is so different than the world. The world's wisdom is temporary. The Spirit's wisdom, the, the wisdom of God is eternal. The, 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 the world's wisdom is, is limited to our senses, what we can perceive with our senses. But the wisdom that is from God, the wisdom that's truly wisdom, is beyond our senses. The wisdom that is of the world is very impersonal, but the wisdom that's from God is deeply personal. So I want to walk through those three as we think about the power of God through the spirit of God bringing us the wisdom of God that is eternal beyond our senses and deeply personal. First of all, eternal. It's important to note that Paul, as he's speaking, I think I've made this clear before, but if you haven't been with us, he's writing to a Roman colony who worships Caesar as God. If you remember, Caesar Augustus passed away in AD 14. As soon as he died, they quickly deified him. Uh, by the Roman Senate made a decision to call him Divus Augustus. That's divine Augustus. And then they built a huge temple that was facing the central square in Corinth so that the imperial cult of worshiping their former king could be uh, kind of furthered, that they would regularly remember Divus Augustus, the God that we worship, 
In fact, when they would say Jesus is Lord, it was as opposed to Caesar is Lord. That was the, that was the statement. It was a, what Paul is doing right now when he says the wisdom of this age and the rulers of this age are doomed to pass away is he's kind of like sticking it in the face of the Roman government. Right? He's going, oh, you think you're wise? Your wisest one is dead. He couldn't defeat death. You know, I like to read biographies periodically. You know, read, I read Steve Jobs' biography and like, man, this guy was a brilliant man, but he's still dead. He wasn't smart enough to defeat death, but the wisdom of God in Jesus Christ was. We, we serve a king who not only died for our sins willingly, but overcame Satan's sin and death and rose again on the third day and is the King of kings and the Lord of lords who reigns eternally. Our wisdom is eternal. We worship a God who overcame our limitations, who overcame our brokenness, who reigns eternal as the risen King. Paul's gonna get to that in, in, in chapter 15. And so Paul wants to be clear we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God declared, de decreed before the ages for our glory. There's two things going on there. He de decreed before the ages, that means before of creation. So before the created realm came into being, God had it in his mind that he would make much of his son through a death on the cross to overcome Satan's sin and death for you and I. He would display his glory and grace this is before even creation happened, God had it in his mind to display what he's like to us through Jesus Christ, okay? So that's before the ages. But then it says it's for our glory, which is the other end of the ages, okay? This is pre-creation. This is in the new heavens and new earth when we get a new body and we're glorified without sin, without brokenness, without suffering. We are everything we were meant to be. The true definition of maturity is we will be complete, perfect, so that's where Paul's going. So he goes, here's the wisdom of God. It precedes creation and it'll outlast what you see today. So you want the wisdom of the world? Go ahead. It's dead. It's passing away. It's doomed to perish. I have a wisdom for you that will never run out. That is itself eternity and eternal life for you. See, you may not be a Christian in the room today, but I want to tell you this, whether you yet believe in Jesus or not, God wrote eternity on your heart. Like he's given you a longing for something more. He's given you a sense that this world as it is, is not all there is, right? Regardless of your view on the origin of this world, you still have a sense there was something before it, right? I don't know how you were when I was a kid. I'd, be, I'd go like, I tried to imagine the beginning of creation, you know, I just, and I try to imagine before that, and I had a bit of a mathematician's mind, so I would literally do like equations in my head about how to make up that reality before existence. Anybody else in the room do that and kind of go crazy? You're like, uh, how does that start? You know, like, because we're limited humans, so like, we only know beginning and end, but to have something before beginning, it like, it, it kind of messes with your head, right? But, but you still kind of want to do that, right? You still kind of want to, tap into that or ask about it or it's there. Why? Because God didn't make you just for this limited time and space. He made you for eternity. And he put eternity on your heart. He made you to want something more than just this limited time and space. He made you to, to want an eternal hope, an eternal life. 
And so whether you, you've responded yet to the good news of Jesus yet, I, I will tell you this, you're here because you have a longing for something more. And the wisdom of God says, I can give you it. That in Jesus Christ, you can have it. You can have something more. You can have eternal wisdom. So I was with somebody this last week and counseling them a little bit about some stuff in their own life. And in particular, he, this guy was struggling with the fact that he feels like he hasn't lived the life he had hoped he'd live. His life didn't turn out like he'd hoped it would turn out. It was, there was some looking back and some regrets and some, some shame and disappointment. And, and I, I said, you know, I just want to re- remind you that this, this short little life is just momentary. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, it's like, it's like just spending one bad night in a rundown hotel in comparison to the resort that we're gonna get to have forever. And if we think of the, this, this life, this short life as light and momentary, then, then the sufferings or the struggles or difficulties in comparison to the glory to be revealed is very little, very nothing. It's, 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 it's not a lot. And, and so, but I'll tell you, we, we come to want this life to be more than it could ever be. Anybody with me? Like, someone asked me, I just turned 50, you guys heard that last week, and, um, and they said, you know, did you, get, did you get all your bucket list checked off? Did you do everything you ever wanted to do? And I'm like, I have gotten to do more than I should deserve. If God were to take me home, I'd be happy. In fact, if Jesus returned tomorrow, it would be a joy to be done with the brokenness of this world and to get to enjoy him in a new body forever without sin, suffering, or death, without brokenness in our relationships. Like, man, Jesus, come quickly. And, and, and when we have that perspective that this is just a short whiff, it's like a, a wisp of air, the writer of Ecclesiastes says. It's all vanity. Then, then we begin to long for eternity And when we long for eternity, we long for the eternal God. And when we find the eternal God in Jesus Christ by the Spirit revealing it to us, then we find that we have all that we've always wanted even though this world is passing away. C.S. Lewis says it this way in The Last Battle, all their life, this is his last book in the Narnia series, all their life, referring to the kids that were exploring Narnia and all the experiences they went through, all their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever and which every chapter is better than the one before. That's what we get to look forward to. That's wisdom. See, when you have a perspective that this is a short life and that the things that we're going through are momentary, but we have something to long look forward to, you treat people differently. You treat your stuff differently. You don't, you don't hoard. You don't just protect. You don't just keep it to yourself. You're like, I have so little time to live for Jesus here and to help other people meet him. And I have so much time to get to rest with him forever. This is the time I give away for the sake of Jesus and his glory. And I, I don't get so petty. I realize it's all passing away and I get something in the future that's worth it all. See, internal perspective changes how we see life and it changes how we see each other. It also changes how you see Jesus. See, Paul goes on in verse eight, none of the rulers of this age understood this. They didn't have this eternal perspective. They didn't understand the wisdom of God and Jesus at the cross. It says if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Paul wants to make it clear he's not blaming the Romans. He's not blaming the Jews for Jesus' crucifixions. He's, he's saying... 
God did not give them the wisdom to see that the king of glory was hanging on a tree. And in God's wisdom, he kept them from seeing that so that Jesus could willingly go to the cross and die for our sins. If they had seen it, if they had seen Jesus for all that he was, they would have never put him on a tree and we would have no hope for forgiveness of sins. So in God's wisdom, it looks like rebellion and at the same time, it's God's brilliance to see Jesus crucified in their ignorance. That's wisdom. You know, just sit back and go like, Wow. God's, yeah, you can clap. I like it when a few people clap. It'd be nice if everybody did, but not for me, for Jesus. <laughs> so here Paul is, in a sense, he's saying what Jesus is saying at the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now, why is he saying that? Because he's trying to say to the Corinthians, neither did you. You didn't know what you were doing. The only reason that you had your eyes open to Jesus and your hearts were changed to receive him is because the spirit of God broke into your life and changed you from the inside out. Don't think you should take credit for any of this. It's all the grace of God and the spirit of God changed you from the inside out. You know, I, I think when we, when we see the potential for all of us to be blind, it makes us more humble when we realize we have sight because we realize we didn't give ourselves sight, he did. And I'm talking about spiritual sight. Several years ago, I was in Germany, about 20 years ago, speaking at a conference, and I got to hang out with some older men, and I asked them about World War II and the Holocaust, and as soon as I did, they were, you could see deep shame. In fact, one of the older men said, yeah, one of the hardest things right now in our culture is that a lot of the young men who need to really step up and take some leadership in our country are kind of hesitant to because they're just afraid to repeat what had been done here in the Holocaust. And, and as I listened to them recount on their ability to look back with shame over what had happened, it made me become aware that there's things in my life as I look back that I'm ashamed I was involved in and I just couldn't see. And then when I did see, I realized it was the grace of God that I was able to see and it was the grace of God that enabled me to be forgiven so that I didn't look at my past with shame and regret. And I, I had a heart, well, my heart welled up with, with, with love for these men. You know, like, I could sit there and go, how could you do this? And at the same time, I was able to see that they didn't see it when they were doing it. You know, I feel the same way today with abortion in our country. I don't even understand how what just happened in New York could happen and people would cheer about it. I don't get it. And if I'm not careful, I get angry and I just want to go, what's wrong with everybody? And then the Lord goes, remember, you couldn't see something at one point in your life either. Be gracious. Maybe pray, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. As they look down on a little life and don't protect it. All of us, apart from the spirit of God opening our eyes to see spiritual realities and truths, will not be able to change. So the wisdom of God is eternal. It gives you a, a perspective that comes from God, not just from humanity. It, it broadens your scope to see the world in a much bigger way. And it reminds you that the eternal God came near in Jesus Christ to tell us how much he cares about life. All life. Life in the womb. Life in the retirement home life that's different than us, that doesn't speak the same language as us, that doesn't look the same as us. He cares about them all. 
And this wisdom is not just eternal that the Spirit brings to our hearts, but it's also beyond our senses. Paul continues, as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us. Notice that Paul's given the credit to God. He revealed them to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. It's a lot of things we can perceive through the five senses. C.S. Lewis at one point took some time to say, let's compare plants and animals and humans and how they interact with the external world. You know, plants in, in, interact with the sun through photosynthesis and, and, and animals, you know, they do have five senses like us, but to be clear, they're not human. Just wanna make sure you know that. I know in, in this region that you might forget that. They're not your little babies. You know, they're still dogs and cats and fish and rats and all that. They do have five senses, but, but C.S. Lewis goes on to say, not only do we have five senses, but we as humans are made in the image of God and have the ability to have God waken us up to the supernatural realities of a relationship with him. That he can actually stir in the soul of a human and make them in love with God. Like he can change you from the inside out. That doesn't happen to your dog, just to be clear. Like your dog's not praying for you. Okay, you, I know you might disagree with that, but he's not. I know my dog is not praying for me. I think my dog is cursing me, even now as I speak, likely. But C.S. Lewis wants to say, do you understand what is true of us? We aren't just five sense people. We have an internal sense that's spiritual, that, that God awakens through supernatural means so that we can come to know the God we can't see in ways that are more profound than your five senses could ever describe. Richard B. Hayes says it this way, the truth about God is revealed not through philosophy, but through prophecy. Not through rhetoric, but through revelation. Now, he's not saying there's something wrong with philosophy or uh, rhetoric. He's just saying the truth about God, as much as you use your reason, as much as you study the world, as much as you engage in scientific analysis, the truth of God still has to be revealed to your heart by God. It still does. I was interacting with someone online. Don't, by the way, I, I would recommend we just get off from Facebook for the next 10 years. It's just a waste of time. But I had someone message me and he had been responding to some tweet that I'd posted about the spirit of God and he asked, how, 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 could you, how can you know that you have the spirit? And I just went, started going through the scriptures. I said, well, you'll be convicted of your sin. That's one of the things the spirit does and you'll be led to repent, turn from your sin and turn to the God who saves you from your sin. You, your eyes will be open to see that only Jesus is the means by which God has provided so that you might be forgiven, that his death on the cross was for you and you'll be able to receive that. And I, I said, and you'll be able to actually proclaim that not only did Jesus die on the cross, but the spirit will tell you that he rose from the dead and you'll be able to agree with that. That, that really happened and he's alive today. And, and I, I continued, I said, not only will that happen, but he'll pour his love into your heart. Romans 5, 5, the spirit of God is the means by which God's love is poured into our hearts. And then I went to Romans 8. When you have the spirit of God, you're, you're able to cry out, Abba, daddy, daddy, you, you know that you're his child, that God dearly loves you. And, and there's a testimony in your heart that the spirit keeps saying, I love you. I love you, you're mine. And I continued and said, not only will that happen, but you'll, you'll, you'll know you're adopted into this eternal family and you're secure knowing you're his forever. And you'll believe not only that you've, 
you are loved and accepted, but Jesus is your very righteousness that makes you acceptable before God. And, and you know that the Spirit will tell you there's a day coming when judgment will come. God will bring justice and the Spirit does convict you of judgment, but you're not afraid of it because you know that you won't stand before the judge on your own. You'll stand on the merits of Jesus Christ. And, and you have that certainty in your heart. And, 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 and you, you, then you long for his return. You're regularly saying, come Lord Jesus, Come. And you'll experience the fruit of the Spirit. I kept going. I just like, I'm gonna give them as much as I can. The fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I gave him all that and he said, but is there like visible evidence? And I was like, wow. So I said, well, there is. Yeah, he, he, he does work in physical ways, but even Jesus said like, I can heal a paralytic, but that's not nearly as powerful as forgiving your sins. But I did say, yeah, he, he, he brings miraculous healing. He can bring words of knowledge to people, even prophecy. He's enabled people to speak in other languages, in fact. And he still wasn't satisfied. He said, is there any measurable evidence you can give me? <laughs> and I remember in that moment, just going like, I just gotta take him to this passage. That... I can't give you external evidence for the Spirit of God. Only the Spirit of God can give you internal evidence that he is real and working in your heart. And when you know, you know. Because all this stuff becomes real to you. God speaks to you in ways that you recognize, not always audibly, but you know that he's with you and he tells you he loves you and he affirms his forgiveness and grace for you. And these are the things you get. And it... And that's why Paul calls it a hidden or secret knowledge. He's not, he's not trying to play into the Gnosticism of the day of saying like, okay, if you attain, if you find this little nugget of truth, you'll be more mature than everybody else. And if I could give a warning, uh, sometimes I feel like if we're not careful, that's why we come to hear people preach because we're like, man, could you just tease out one more thing I've never heard before from the Bible? And I would just say that's a dangerous place to go because if you're looking for me to say something new, that's where most heresy comes from. I should be saying the things that people have been saying for 2,000 years. And if you're bored with it, then you might not have the Spirit. Because the Spirit of God, when you speak the truths of God, says in your heart, yes, amen. Preach it, brother. Preach it, sister, whatever. When people speak the good news of Jesus, your heart leaps. The Spirit says, yes. It's like Daniel, when Paul refers to this wisdom as a mystery that was hidden in the Jewish mind, they probably would have been brought back to Daniel, in particular Daniel chapter two, where King Nebuchadnezzar can't find a wise person in all of his courts to, to interpret the dreams and brings Daniel and Daniel is given the interpretation by God. Afterwards, Daniel cries out, blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Sounds a lot like this passage today. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what's in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you made known to us the king's matter. Here's what happens. When you get the revelation of the spirit revealing the things of God, specifically and most fully in Jesus Christ, your heart cries out in praise. Because you know you could have never figured it out. And you're like, why did you reveal it to me? I'll tell you, I, you, you guys know my story. I grew up in a Christian home. I was the Sunday school kid. I, I, I preached my first sermon when I was 17 years old on Revelation. It was probably all wrong. 
right? Looking back, I made it about numbers and dates and, you know, Russia and whoever else. You know, this is way back in the, the 80s, you know. Um, I didn't know God. I didn't have his spirit. I just knew a lot about him because I studied. I just grew up in church and so I knew how to give the answers. That's not the same thing as God revealing to your heart the wisdom of the gospel in Jesus Christ in such a way that you break out in praise. It's just not the same. And my concern is that there may be people even here in this room who are trying to live a spiritual life as a natural person in the flesh, in your head, with your intellect. And I'm not saying you don't use your brain. I'm just saying if your brain doesn't get the revelation of God through the spirit of God, then your brain is broken. It cannot see clearly. It will not understand the things of God the way he wants you to understand them. This wisdom is eternal. This wisdom is beyond our senses. It's not just limited to what we can see or hear or smell or taste or touch, but it's also deeply personal. Paul goes on, who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. And we've received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who's from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Paul is using a, 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 a real human illustration of just going like, hey, none of you really know me. Like, you know what I present, you know, how, you know my stories, you know me a little bit, but you don't really know my thoughts. In fact, if you did, you'd probably think I was crazy half the time. But you're not in my head. You don't think what I think. You don't feel what I feel. You don't really know me like that. And Paul's going, how can you know a person really? How can you know God? I mean, do you know his thoughts? And the answer is, you can. That's what's remarkable. Paul is saying, you can't even really know a person as intimately as you can know God. Because God, the spirit who knows the thoughts of God, will make the very thoughts of God known to your spirit. I don't, I don't want you to miss this. He's saying that everything else is a shadow knowledge. Even my wife and I, like, just to be clear, like, if you just know data about a person, you don't really know them, right? Men, a little clue. Like, just, right, okay? See, you gotta know more than, about your wife than just her birthday, anniversary, and her favorite food and stuff. Like, you're seeking to understand her, right? I hope. Friends in the room, are you seeking to understand your friends? You're limited, right? You're like, man, I'm trying, and I don't get it, and I don't get him, and I don't get her, and we're trying to listen, and that's why there's so much brokenness, right? When, when, I, when I married Janie, I got to know her in a more intimate way than I did before I got married, right? But I'm telling you, I still don't know her like I know God. And God knows me in ways that nobody does. He is so intimately acquainted with my ways. And that can either lead me to be completely afraid to talk to him because he knows what I think and what I do and he knows my darkness and my brokenness or I can go, he knows me and he still loves me. And, and so you wanna talk about wisdom? I wanna go to the one who really knows me. I mean, really, really knows me and still chooses to love me. There's none of you are that nice. None of you are that loving. None of you are that trustworthy, but God is. 
And Paul is saying, do you understand? And and just to be clear, in the culture he's in, it's very stoic. They're very detached relationally. So the idea of a personal God already is a really hard thing for them to get. Now he's saying, it's not just a personal God who relates to you like a friend. This is a personal God who intimately knows you and you can intimately know him. It's powerful. There's a difference between knowing from the inside Knowing when you sit in someone's seat. Some of you today are gonna yell at the screen and pretend like you know how to play football, (laughs) right? But you probably never had a 350 pound man coming at you while you're trying to throw the ball. And until you stand in that position, you don't know what it feels like. So, right? Am I right? Like, that's just how, how it works. Like, you don't know until you're really in it. And what Paul's trying to say is that's, that's the kind of knowledge you can have of God. She can be really in it with him, intimately acquainted with his thoughts. Stephen T. Um says it this way, one can understand Aristotelian ethics without knowing Aristotle, but Paul is pushing it a step further and saying, no one can really understand God until he begins to know God. And in this way, knowing God is radically different than knowing about God. Jonathan Edwards says it this way, there's a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of the loveliness of that holiness and grace. There's a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. A man may have the former that knows not how honey tastes, but a man cannot have the latter until he's had an idea of the taste of honey in his mind. So there's a difference between believing that a person is beautiful and having a sense of his beauty The former may be obtained by hearsay, but the latter only by seeing the countenance. There's a wide difference between mere speculative rational judging about anything to be excellent and having a sense of its sweetness and beauty. And I would say in the spirit, by the spirit, with the spirit of God, we get to taste and see that the Lord is good and that he really is beautiful and that he really is lovely and that he really is the sweetest taste there ever was. And I want that for all of us, family. I want, I want us to say, I don't want to live in the natural realm. I want to live in the spiritual realm. I want to walk through this world with the taste of honey on my lips, the taste of the gospel. Stephen continues, because here's the question, how might I know that? How can I experience that? And he says this, I love this, because the, the religions of the world, especially Buddhism, says you need to kind of enter into enlightenment. You've got to kind of raise yourself up to a higher plane, and other religions say you've got to behave in a particular way so you can be made acceptable, and even then you still don't have a personal relationship with this God whereby he intimately acquaints himself with you. It's just that you don't get destroyed by him, or maybe you get a sense of the whole other, you know, in Buddhism and enlightenment, but Stephen T. Um says this, the limited doesn't need to transcend its limits in order to reach enlightenment. Speaking of us, we're the limited. Instead, the limitlessly enlightened one, meaning Jesus, God, needs to enter the limitations of space and time in order to communicate himself. What is he saying? He's saying, the God who's eternal makes himself limited in the person of Jesus Christ so the limitless God can come into our limited world and make himself known in, in, in these feeble minds and weak lives. And that's why Paul's going, I'm gonna boast in my weakness and in my foolishness because I've got the wisdom of the creator of the universe making himself known to me. Isn't that amazing? And you'll never get this unless you have the spirit of God. Everything I'm saying won't make any sense to you unless the spirit powerfully breaks in and changes your heart. Paul says it this way as we close. The natural person does not accept 
the things of the spirit of God for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things but is himself to be judged by no one, which is another way of saying we can look at the world with spiritual eyes and see what's actually going on, but the world doesn't get us when they look at us. We can get, we can get the world, but the world can't get us. And what I mean by that is what we believe doesn't make sense apart from the spirit of God. So to sit under the judgment of people who don't have the spirit of God about what we believe makes no sense because they don't have the judge of the world informing them. Doesn't mean we don't sit under judgment with each other. We have to com- be committed to one another and be accountable to each other. But the world doesn't have the wisdom of God to bring us to account to God. But I love this. I was, I was interacting, this last verse I wanna read, I was interacting with a guy from our church this last week and he, he said, Jeff, I just wish I had what you have. And he's a professing Christian who I believe has the spirit of God and, and I just read this, I just stated this last verse to him. Who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? We have the mind of Christ. And so he had said to me, Jeff, I just wish I had what you have. And I said, you do have what I have. You have the mind of Christ. What more is there to have? You have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. What more is there to to possess? You have God himself. How much more do you want? And he said, it's not that I don't believe I have that. It's that I lack the faith to believe that I have it more often. And that's what I want to just say to all of you today. If you have the mind of Christ, I want you to walk as spiritual people. I want you to tap into what you have. The reason why the people in Corinth are treating each other so poorly is because they're living like everybody else. And they're living like they don't have access to the very mind of Christ. If you're a child of God, you have the mind of Christ. You have have the love of Christ. You have the wisdom accessible to you through Christ. You, You have everything that Christ had. Let's stop living like we're so spiritually impoverished. Amen? We have the wisdom of God by the spirit of God because of Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, so much more to say. Oh, this passage just wrecked me this week. Just, I'm so overwhelmed that the living God knows me and I get to know you. I get to be acquainted with your ways and your thoughts. Oh, I don't deserve this. We don't deserve this. And it's all grace. It's just a gift. It's because of Jesus. Jesus, you gave everything for us so that we could have everything in you. And I pray for our church today that we would be wise, that we would be full of the spirit, that even today as we go out, we would not walk in the ways of the old nature, but we would walk in the ways of newness of life We would show ourselves to belong to our Father in heaven by the way we love people, the way we serve people, the way we put on the mind of Christ, the way we think of others as you thought of us. Lord, change us. Help us to live into what is already true for us in Christ. And we pray this in his precious name, amen.